Hello everyone, my name is Illumide. And my name is Christy. And welcome to the Big Empty Birds podcast. I feel like this advice, Illumide, extends well beyond cooking, which is do not live your life around what white people like. <laughs> that... <laughs> You're, you're gonna... That's going to be the intro of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and now we wait the space of the intro music so it's easier to cut in. Oh. Well, before we start today's episode, I would like to introduce a very, very special guest and one of Christy's favorite chefs. I would like to welcome Christy's husband, John. John, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. We're very happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really sorry Alton Brown dropped out on you at the last minute, but I'm, I'm glad to be your first alternate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christy, what have you been up to since the last episode? Well, I had a... <laughs> Found out a bit of news that was a great collision of two of my worlds. So I need to give you a little science background, and I promise this story takes a funnier turn. So I work for the Solar Energy Office, and when people think solar energy, they usually think like solar panels, which are photovoltaic, which is one way of getting energy from the sun. But there's another way that we don't use as much called concentrating solar power, which you may have seen, but it's like a whole bunch of mirrors around a tower and all of the mirrors reflect the sun's energy into the tower. And you can use, like you can convert that to electricity too. Anyways, I bring that up because the latest investors in concentrating solar power technology are none other than Two Chains and Juicy J. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yes. Yes, they invested in this company called Heliogen, which is like the biggest U.S. So concentrating solar power hasn't really caught on in the U.S. in a big way. It's much bigger in European countries. But they invested in Heliogen, which is this big concentrating solar power company. So two chains. (laughs) I'm on the communications team. We are cracking up because like our whole job is like communicate science in a a plain language way. And here comes two chains on Instagram. Two chains says, so I invested in this company that basically takes the sun's energy and packages it up for reuse, even at night, kind of like a sun refinery. <laughs> we see you two, two chains, chains doing your job. Poetry, <laughs> poetry. <laughs> two chains out here with the plain language science. <laughs> you love to see it. I like this. <laughs> yeah, Juicy J's tweet about it was: I was gonna buy a moissanite diamond, but I decided to invest in this instead. <laughs> He made sure to let everyone know. Y'all need to get two chains in as a consultant. <laughs> oh my your, god! And your PR. <laughs> oh my god! I feel like I think that would be actually a brilliant and effective idea because who else would you get to be a spokesperson? Nobody's listened to Martha Stewart. You take that back. <laughs> On the cooking episode, I say nobody's listening to Martha Stewart. <laughs> Well, I mean, but not not regarding solar. I think <laughs> if you have people like Two Chains or even the new rappers, the the babies and the um, them kids, whatever they call them, we can get the word spread real fast, and the rest of us can get behind solar power. So shout out to these two. I'm very impressed to hear it. 
I love I to see it. All right. So also this week, Illumide, it's what you've been waiting for. I finally watched Succession. Yes. <laughs> and I love it. Thank you. Thank you. I Thank love you. it. <laughs> it is so good. I was so nervous you were going to say you hate it. But continue. <laughs> oh, yeah. I purposefully put it in the document to like torment you a little. I just wrote, I finally watched Succession. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's as if someone took Arrested Development and was like, what if this was a for real drama, but also hilarious? It's so good. Yes, the writing is so good. So if our listeners are haven't listened to our entire back catalog, which pause the podcast and go listen to our back catalog of 29 other episodes. <laughs> I forget which episode, but Illumide made a very bold assertion that this show Succession, which is on HBO, it's had two seasons and the third one is upcoming, was... Did you say the best show ever made yes. or one of the... Yeah, I think you said, yeah, the best show. I think show. I said the best. <laughs> <laughs> With my chest, I was like, this is the one. <laughs> and anyways, it's a show about a family who are definitely not the Murdochs, who are like part of this like giant family-owned media conglomerate and the patriarch is aging and there's all of this questions about who's going to succeed him. And yeah, it's very, very funny. And I will, the only caveat, the only caveat to my saying that I love the show, because I do love the show, is that it took me probably five episodes to really fully figure out what was going on. So at first, it just struck me as like straight comedy. Like they were even doing the little like office, like zoom in on people's faces, mockumentary style sort of thing. And then in the next couple episodes, it was a little bit more drama. And I I got the impression they were trying to make me sympathize with these characters. And I was like, these are terrible people. I don't sympathize with these people. And then I figured out they're not trying to make you sympathize with them. It is hilarious. They're building up the story so you're invested in the story and the drama of it. But you're <laughs> you are free to feel schadenfreude for every single character because not one of them is a good person. Not a what single kills one. me about that show is they all deserve each other. Mm-hmm. Every last one of them, does, even the ones that you think, oh, they might be okay. Like, spoiler alert, Succession HBO. You know the nephew who seems like he just got roped into the whole thing Mm -hmm. and he seems like the only i don't know non-psychopath of them all you later find out he's a motherfucking psychopath too and you're like ah (laughs) you all deserve each other they do i also didn't realize that will ferrell is a producer on this show he is yeah which explains partly why it's so funny yeah that tracks this this show just like it's funny in like such a unique way like i was cracking up another slight spoiler succession hbo i forget which episode there's like a big charity dinner and there's all of this drama around like who's gonna speak at the charity dinner but one of the family's children has been put in charge of just like organizing the dinner (laughs) and is like drunk with power on this one tiny task (laughs) and so there's all this real drama going on but the butter was like frozen there's all these scenes where people are at the tables having these like hushed conversations and this other family member just jumps in and goes sorry about the butter (laughs) (laughs) and it happened like five times he just cuts in the conversation sorry about the butter (laughs) I swear (laughs) Oh, John, I'm really sorry I watched this show without you. <laughs> no. I'll watch it again. Did you guys watch Weeds? 
Yeah. Well, I didn't finish it because it got so very bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've actually made two attempts. I, I, I tried to get through it. And I got through like season four and then I gave up. And then years later, I was like, you know what? Maybe I just binged it too fast. Maybe I got tired of it. So I tried it again. And, and I, I think I maybe got half a, a season for it's awful. It, it really, it goes downhill. But yes, I have seen it. Past season three is where they completely go left. It doesn't, like... It should have ended. It. After season three, stop. Yeah. It should have ended. And and in fact, if yeah. anyone wants to go watch it, I highly recommend you go watch it. The show is marvelous through the third season. And actually, the end of season three sort of works as an ending, kind of. Like, it, there's a cliff. There's a cliffhanger, but it works. You, you, can, you can stop there. Yeah, that deadpan humor oh, where... Yeah. They take everything so seriously. I mean, in, in the case of weeds, it actually is serious because like some shit goes down. But the relationships that they have with each other, spoiler alert, weeds, that scene where she is like, she gets the the friend, yeah. she gets diagnosed with cancer and like, because she's such a terrible person, nobody wants to be her friend. And the lady <laughs> walks into her house and she goes, be my friend be my friend and then she grabs her hair and she starts pulling her she goes be my goddamn motherfucking friend <laughs> that scene will forever be top top tier comedy to me so john what have you been up to this week well the the, the past couple weeks the the newest thing in my life is is less fun than anything in christy's life i uh am one of the latest victims of the return to the office craze that that uh, American businesses are hell bent on, and it's 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 as bad as as you think, and it it's you know there's nothing different about it than than what I was doing before COVID. It, it's exactly the same circumstances. I'm sitting at the same sort of sad desk in a sad office with sad lights, and but it's having having you know, worked from home for, for a year and a half or so. And, and like, yeah, there are a lot of disadvantages, but there's a lot of advantages that I quite like. And uh, it has been interesting to now go back and just realize how utterly pointless so much of like office work is that we have just for years been like, well, this is life, I guess. And uh, now you go back and it's like, you know, there are days when, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm working sort of on my own on a project and it uh, it really makes you wonder why on earth you know are they are they making people you know commute and you know waste the gas and and uh, you know waste the utility prices on the office and so forth so it's been uh, it's been a readjustment kind of quote unquote returning to work which is my my favorite expression that they're using because it makes it sound like as if you haven't been working as if we time. haven't been working yeah, yeah which is my favorite like <laughs> like just because you don't know how to self motivate is not my problem <laughs> <laughs> you know like first of all the thing is. I feel like most companies, I feel like they want to justify the cost that they spend. Say, for instance, if they spend X amount of money on rent for a commercial space, the company's ability to claim that kind of stuff on their taxes, they want to continue to yeah. be able to justify that. Yeah. So for them to do that, everybody has to come back to work. Absolutely. Yeah. That's not fair. The people who are coming to work are just as productive, if not more productive, while they're home. And they don't have to factor that extra two or three hours they have to commute. They can use that to sleep and be better rested. Or they can actually wake up just as early and put those three hours back into the work that they do. But the oppression to have people go back to work. Uh, yeah. I, like and I, I think, I mean, some of it I think is, is also just a lack of imagination. 
on, on the leadership's behalf because you know some of these people have been working in an office physically co-located for i mean 40 years and they just simply lack the imagination to to grasp what a a workplace could look like uh without people. with without that and i i do know there there are in some places tax incentives that places get for hiring um people from the area so you know places will get tax rebates from local governments and so forth and the understanding is you know you're quote unquote bringing jobs to the area and if all of a sudden you're entirely remote people can live anywhere Mm. and still work so there's there's less of a case to be made to you know local and state governments that they're hiring people from from their uh constituency which i know is another part of it Wow, but of course it is. Yeah, it's the funny part though is I have already spoken to coworkers who very brazenly just in the office have, while talking to me, just straight up threatened to quit if their boss does not <laughs> let them at least work partially remote. And uh, I mean, that's I've been thinking that, but to to actually hear people in the office with their doors open, yeah. just be like, "I'll quit." <laughs> is it's pretty liberating uh, to, to sort of you know hear hear people I work with uh, be that honest about it. <laughs> well, I should ask, have you discussed in the heights yet? I haven't. Okay, good. Oh. It sat in this sort of in between where it didn't really go all out being a comedy, but then it didn't go all out being a tragedy either. It just it couldn't really figure out if it wanted to be lighthearted or mm. you know heavy. And I guess, yeah, for me at least, that, that answer is part of it. Well, I will not be finishing this. <laughs> <laughs> if a movie can't do the job of grabbing my attention in the first 10 minutes, even if the ending is, like, mind-blowing, it's not worth it. <laughs> because you just wasted 10 full minutes. Like, what were you doing the first 10 minutes? <laughs> like, why? Why can't you pitch the whole... Yeah, it's a... Uh, Five minutes for you because you probably watched it on 2x speed. I know. <laughs> I do. I do. Look, I don't have a lot of time. So what have I been up to? I went to a party this weekend. It was like a an art party. I don't even know what it was. The person who invited me didn't actually quite say what it was until when I got there. That look I told you any excuse for me to be outside this summer, I'm taking it. Like I, I don't even. You say, are you? Can you? I'm like, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> you don't have to say what it is. I will be there. <laughs> And it was like, it was at this art studio in Baltimore and it was a lot of fun. And the person had their art on the wall. It was very, very adult-like, my dear. I felt so adult. But of course I showed up in a crop top, like (laughs) very (laughs) unadult-like. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then I, I went out in DC. It's like my first clubbing experience since the panoramic. And first of all, let me say, K. Michelle was supposed to be there. Was it K. Michelle? Fuck. Keisha Cole? Sorry. See, I'm at this point, I don't even know who's who or what's what. But one of them was supposed to be there that night. And it was just the DJ was playing bangers all night. And it was like near 2 a.m. And she still hadn't arrived. I'm like, my dear, that drive back to Baltimore? Because this is in D.C. It was karma in D.C., I think. And I was like, I got to drive back to Baltimore. That's at least an hour. Like, first of all, I didn't, I didn't even know she was going to be there that night. I was just going along with somebody who invited me. And I was like, at least it's going to be a good dance. And then they were like, oh, yeah, Kay, whatever it is. Keisha Cole came. One of them is supposed to be there. And I was like, okay, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I'm leaving it, too. <laughs> so I did leave. Um, 
But that was fun. On today's episode, we'll be talking about cooking. So I guess we'll start off with, I know the answer because you're my husband. <laughs> I'm asking this like it's a question. But for all of us, do you like cooking? And not necessarily the same question, are you good at cooking? Ah, let me answer first, because you already know this answer too. I do not like cooking. My budget likes what I cook. Me personally, <laughs> I don't love it. And, and I think one of the reasons why I don't like cooking is not because of, because I mean, I am lazy, don't get me wrong, but that's not why I hate cooking. Why I hate cooking is the end result when I taste it, what I expect it to taste like is usually not what it tastes like. And that part pisses me off. Because I'm like, I did all that work and it still doesn't taste like I expected to? What the fuck? Um, that is why I don't like cooking. How about you? I could really just derail your show right now if I just said no, right? Yeah. I'm supposed to be some sort of subject matter expert. Just, no, I don't we like it. We are professionals. We'll roll with it. <laughs> But don't you fucking lie on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do absolutely love to cook. It is one of the things I love most in life. Um, am I good at it? I certainly, you know, I, I, I privately like to think I am. I, it's like anything else. I think it's it's better for other people to judge it. But I... Okay, so yes, <laughs> he's very good at it. Continue, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just get rid of that modesty. I, I like to always try to be better at it. I usually am dissatisfied in some regard with what I've done. But okay, you know what? There's no hope for the rest of us then, because if I'm dissatisfied with what I make and I know it's objectively trash, people who are good at it also are like, oh, "Wow, okay, there's no hope." Yeah, absolutely, I hope. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very spoiled because John is being very modest. He's a great cook and really enjoys it. So with those two facts, like it's not as much of a chore for him. He cooks most nights for us when we do cook. I fall somewhere in the middle where I sort of like cooking and I'm sort of good at cooking. Like I can do all the basics, like rice, got it. Like pasta, got it. Like I can make you several different dinners that will be fine and you will enjoy them and you will not make any faces, but I'm not great at it. And if it's too complicated, I will fuck it up. So that's where I sit with cooking. It's just sort of like a, I'm never like excited to cook, but I'm fine with it. Sometimes it's nice, like, bopping around the kitchen. That's yeah. that's where I stand on cooking. Depending on what it is, right? Some things I can manage, and I don't think it tastes horrible. But where I fuck up is most of the things that I cook are Nigerian dishes, which have a billion steps. A billion steps. They have way <laughs> too many steps, first of all. And all those steps have to happen in a very particular sequence. And the thing about Nigerian cooking is most of the time there isn't a good recipe mm -hmm. because it, a lot of Nigerians cook based off of intuition. They kind of just mm. know what happens when and what to do about stuff. And I'm just like, no, my dear, if you don't give me a very good set of instructions, there is no way I'm going to get... Even when you give me a good set of instructions, I will fuck this up. Yeah. Like, you need to give me the instructions and explain why the instructions are the way they are. But, yeah, but, uh, like, if I cook something, I'm sure to a non-Nigerian would taste okay. But because I'm Nigerian and I know what it should taste like, I'm like, 
this is trash. <laughs> this is objectively trash. This should not taste like this. But they're like, oh, it tastes nice. There's, of course, there are spices in there. I put the spices in there. <laughs> not in the right order, I'm sure. But they're there. Yeah, no, and, and that's the part that really gets me. I'm like, I know what this should taste like. And it doesn't. So. <laughs> yeah, just only cook Nigerian food for your white friends. Oh, while I'm on this topic, I'm not done. Let me just continue to complain. You know what really pisses me off besides my own cooking? <laughs> because I know when I cook it myself, I know how much money I've saved. When I take my raggedy ass to a Nigerian restaurant, a Nigerian restaurant that's supposed to be good at this shit, and I get the food, and it tastes worse than if I had made it myself. <laughs> Meanwhile, I have paid them. The thing is, Nigerian restaurants don't cost like $10 a plate, $20 minimum mm. a plate. And if I'm paying... like. Those exorbitant prices, and they just chalk it up to the fact that, oh, these prices are because the ingredients are very difficult to find. We have to get the ingredients. And it's still, you you spent all that money to import the ingredients, and it still tastes like shit? What the fuck are you doing? You're a restaurant? I think that's very, I think that's very legitimate. I think that if you can produce something in your own kitchen that is better than it is at a restaurant, you're, you're correct in being furious. And whoever charged you money for that, I think that's, <laughs> that's very valid. So you actually segued pretty anyway. perfectly into my next question, which was, do you prefer cooking off a recipe and having things very regimented, or do you like to wing it and go by intuition? That's the a, answer is no. No, well, that's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's, it's an interesting question, actually, because I... It sort of depends what I want. It sort of depends what I'm doing, because if it's if it's a recipe, if it's a if it's a type of food that I know well, if I sort of know what the techniques are, if I know what it's supposed to taste like, I definitely prefer to wing it. That that's I mean, and, and again, <laughs> you know this, but that is definitely my sort of style. I like to watch the food cook, you know, smell it, taste it along the way, and kind of just see how it's it's developing and go by that. I will say though that when I'm learning something new, it is definitely more fun to have a a good recipe to go by and someone that, but written by someone that knows how to do it and, and written by someone who knows how to write a recipe. There are definitely good recipes and bad recipes. There are- <coughs> Bon appetit. Well, I'm not gonna call anybody. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to make any enemies you know, here, but. Yeah, let's... <laughs> I am. <laughs> there are certain magazine publications that, that leave out, you know, really crucial... And, well, what's funny about that is that the thing about a recipe is that if, you, if you're reading a recipe and you're relying on it for really, you know, step-by-step -step specific instructions, you don't know if they've left something out because mm. you're you're relying on them to, to tell you what to do. So it's, it's really difficult to know when you messed it up or when the recipe just wasn't specific enough. Like there are definitely recipes I'll read for something I know how to make where I'll just look up the recipe because I forget which spices do I put in this or, or what ratio of, of whatever do I need. And I'll be reading it and go, well, that's not how you do that. And and I know that because I've made it before. But if I'm re making something brand new and, and a great example of a um, of a really good cookbook and, and good recipes is one that, that we just got. And it's this, um, it's a cookbook for this restaurant in London called Dishoom. And it's uh, an Indian food restaurant. And the, the, the recipes are phenomenal. They are immaculately written. And as someone like me who has really not cooked a lot of Indian food, I, I don't have a good palate for the, the, the flavors and, and all the taste combinations and stuff. 
if I follow it to the letter, I know that I am going to get good Indian food out the other end because whoever wrote it knows mm-hmm. it, it, they put all the details in there that if you don't if you don't know to look for them, you don't know they're absent. Like one one huge pet peeve of mine when I'm when I'm cooking and following a recipe, and this sounds like such a minor thing, but it is very important, is you know, you'll see a recipe that says simmer for X amount of time. And it does not tell you covered or uncovered. And I have enough oh. experience now to to to, mm. to usually know which I should do. But if you don't have that experience, it's extremely important because if you if you cover something while it's simmering, what, what you're doing is you just want it, the flavors to develop. You just want the, um, the the heat to break down whatever's in there, and and you don't want the consistency to change at all. If you leave it uncovered, you're letting the water evaporate, and you want it to thicken and change consistency. And those are very different things. And a lot of times recipes will just leave that out. And if you don't really know what you're doing already, that can um, that can mess you up. So um, so to answer the question, it's I like recipes when I'm learning new things, like the Dishoom cookbook, learning how to make Indian food, learning how to do that. Um, the caveat being I, I need the recipe to be good. I need it to sort of teach me something um, because, you know, uh, overly simplistic recipes are you know just as bad as winging it because you know if the instructions are bad the uh, the product is going to be bad i have a question i have a very stupid question where i'm from we don't say cooking for everything we say cooking for things that are done on the stove but we don't include baking anything that happens in the oven we don't call that cooking we call that baking we specifically mm. separate it so like when you say cooking is it like because I think I can manage on top of the stove more than I can in the oven. Because if I have to bake anything, 100%, I won't get it right. Something about inside the <laughs> oven just is different. I can't. Do you, do you put them all in the same pot and just call everything cooking? Or do you specifically no. like section it all? No, I, I, I make the distinction. I mean, there are some gray areas. Like, there are things that you put in the oven that I would still call cooking. But in general... I I am definitely much more comfortable in the cooking realm than I am in the baking realm. And for me, it's... I don't feel as comfortable if I have to put it in the oven and then just trust to the gods that it comes out, right? <laughs> I, I like to have some sort of real-time control over what's happening. Like, if I have to just put something in the oven for an hour and then come back in an hour and hope that what I just spent two hours doing now tastes good that's that's not a level of stress that i i want in my life so i i (laughs) i definitely have more uh more luck cooking than baking yeah i it's funny yeah there's definitely in the oven i think of as baking although there are some things that i tend to think of sweet things or like pastry things or anything that has to undergo those sort of chemical reactions as baking i mean uh, chemical reactions I sound so ignorant. I'm a chemist, but <laughs> but for some reason I associate it more with like sweet things than savory things. But it, this all ties in because I am better at and feel more comfortable baking than cooking because if I do not have a recipe and it is not extremely specific, I am completely out of my depth. It needs to be absolutely specific it needs to describe things exactly and even then i i I just like i can't 
it'll be like cook until golden brown. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, is that golden brown? Is that golden brown? Is it golden brown now? Do I wait too long? Oh God, now it's too brown. Ah, fuck. Like, what does it say to do if it gets too golden brown? It doesn't say like, I, I can't, I can't, (laughs) I can't. I need very specific instructions. And so I actually like baking when it's just like very specific ratios of things. You put it all together and then you stick it in the oven. I can do that. I can do that. And I have a sweet tooth, so that's good. But yeah, I cooking, there's just so much where the instructions will tell you to like subjectively judge something. And I, I I can't, and forget just like making something up on my own. Nothing I've tried to make up on my own has ever tasted good. So I don't even try that anymore, but. That raises another question, right? And I'm actually learning a lot. I know this is supposed to be just an episode, but this is really just a school for me. (laughs) It raises the other question of why is it that a lot of recipes don't tell you what to do if something goes wrong at any one of the steps? Yes. It's kind of like, it goes wrong, they just assume it went right, and they just keep going. I'm like, no, 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 yes. stop right now. Like, can we fix this? It's like the map quest directions, where if you made a wrong turn, you were just fucked. <laughs> Not map quest. Drag them. <laughs> I, Show my age. I, I will say that the, the best cookbooks do. And mm. here's the thing. You know, when a lot of, like... Nowadays, when people when you, when you need a recipe, you go online and and you you Google whatever it is you're trying to make and you click on one of the top three links and you you scroll through the fifteen thousand word blog post that <laughs> you know a woman named Nancy wrote about her biscuits and then you get down to the recipe and there's a there's a there's a better than even chance that it's trash because it, there's no you know she didn't go through a publisher she didn't have it like it's just a website that she posted to so there's no you have no idea if it's good or bad. It's just, you just have to try it and see if it works. So it takes a lot of effort to go through. These are the things that could go wrong. This is how you can fix it. This is how you can look out for it. And most people that are writing online recipes just don't go to that effort. They don't have to. They wrote a blog post. They submitted it. If it's bad, it's bad, whatever. But <laughs> the the really excellent cookbooks will do that. And, and Actually, the, the one that comes to mind is the cookbook that I really got into first and, and the one that I that I really kind of dove into when I was first learning how to, you know, be serious about cooking and, and how to, to, to really get better at it. And that was um, Mastering the Art of French Cooking by Julia Child. And what I love about Ooh. this... Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is, this is my absolute favorite cookbook. And part of it is is a nostalgia thing. You know, this was like the first one that I really enjoyed and got into. And it was, you know, one that my father had and, and he, he looked at a lot and used. And so like it has a special place in my heart. But also it's just objectively a phenomenal cookbook because it doesn't have hundreds and hundreds of recipes. It's not like an encyclopedia. But what's wonderful about it is it's broken down. And, and for instance, you know, there's a section on sauces. It's a French book, so it, it has a whole thing on sauces. And it'll have the recipes, it'll have how you do it. But at the beginning, it has a whole section on technique and it'll talk about the kind of background theory about this is why we do certain, it, there's a lot of why we do things. The, the good ones do that, but the problem is the good ones are written by you know world-class chefs who have experience and not just have experience, but have experience communicating these things to people. You know, it's it's not always the same skill set to be a really great chef and teach other people how to do it. So they're few and far between. And if you're just on like, all recipes online and you're looking up like 
how to make a hollandaise sauce. Like, no, they're not gonna tell you how to fix it because there's a 50-50 chance that the person that wrote the recipe doesn't know how to do it either. So <laughs> you're you're sort of at, <laughs> you're on your own. <laughs> so did you all cook as kids? You wanna go, Illuminae? You know what? The short answer is no. But I remember as kids, what we used to do is Saturday breakfast or whatever, like eggs and toast or whatever. We used to make those and many an egg I have fucked all the way up. Because as a kid, I used to think the more spices you put into something, the better it tastes. But that shit does not apply to eggs. Let me say that again. That shit does not apply to eggs. There is no reason why I should have three tablespoons of thyme for one egg. No, 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 no. I did not know this. I did not know this as a kid. So yeah, as a kid, like they they would let you make stuff like that that really wasn't, um, it was like low stakes or, you know, like you go make a, in the US, it's mostly the ramen brand, like the Marichan ramen or whatever. Where I'm from, it's Indomie. And we used to be able to like so that could apply to indomie right you could put a lot of stuff in noodles that you could put boiled egg in there you could throw some uh, uh, spicy chili ground pepper you could throw a bunch of stuff in there to zhuzh it up so stuff like that we used to make as kids but like nothing like full out full out recipe no like i as a kid first of all i was a really clumsy kid i remember <laughs> the folks i used to live with wouldn't let me drink out of glass cups because without fail i will drop it and i will shatter it like they kept the plastic cups specifically for me because i used to drop shit now cooking was a whole nother level me burning down the house i think the fuck not you trick ass bitch if i had to be anywhere near the stove they'd make sure it was off so yeah no cooking was not a thing i did as a kid all the way go ahead so my my dad cooked all the time um, and he he had a really great way, and still does, of, of getting people curious about stuff. And he's really good at, at figuring out convenient places to get started at something. So, I mean, I remember one of the first things I ever made was scrambled eggs, interestingly <laughs> enough. Uh, and we'd, ha- we'd have no those time. for breakfast a lot. And, um, <laughs> you know, so he, without the time... <laughs> Illuminate, I gotta tell you, man, that, that time, even even in, in more reasonable quantities, time is that's an interesting uh, choice for eggs. But we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll put that one aside for the moment. <laughs> um, but no, we would do scrambled eggs. I mean, just 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 easy, you know, just simple, you know, butter, eggs, and, and a little bit of cheese. My my dad, he's southern, and and you know, a lot of southern cooking involves few ingredients, but you know, the more cheese and fat, the better. So I kind of started there, just, you know, simple stuff. And I, and I think it was just really satisfying to start with a carton of eggs and then end up with something you could eat. And that was a, a, a cool experience for me, even, even when I was younger. And then I think my dad just was really good about introducing me to like more and more stuff I could do. So I cooked as a kid because <laughs> my mom worked two jobs <laughs> and that was the way dinner was getting done. So it was like never uh, like I'm excited to cook. It was like food needs to happen and mom's not going to be home till nine. So none of it was fancy, but that was how I learned to do a lot of basic things. But uh, God knows what episode it was because we've talked about our trauma on so many. But 
Do you remember I was talking on one episode about <laughs> how there are things in my life that I didn't realize were poor people things until later in life? Yep. One of these was, and John pointed this out to me, it just never seemed like a weird thing. Something we had for dinner all of the time that I would make was tuna noodly stuff, which was box mac and cheese, cans of tuna, and cans of peas. <laughs> you mix it all together. <laughs> that's tuna noodly because <laughs> that's cheap and as fuck have, like yeah. cans of tuna cans of peas like off-brand box mac and cheese like <laughs> john heard this and was disgusted I, 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 <laughs> obviously your listeners can't see my face right now but i'm making a face it's it just the the idea the idea of like craft instant cheese and canned tuna as a as like <laughs> as a combination i just i i can't imagine that and i don't want to that's it's just it's a very sad combination of foods that trauma kind of t- i mean all things being unequal whatever uh, um <laughs> you get to be resourceful whatever goes goes mm-hmm. I So I went to boarding school when I was six years old. And in boarding school, what used to happen, I think I've talked about this before too. When you start the semester, where I'm from, it, they're not called semesters. They're technically trimesters because there are three in a year. They're not two. And when you go at the beginning, your parents buy you or whoever, your folks buy you a whole bunch of provisions to take with you. They buy you a, a dry powdered milk. They dry buy you the powder cocoa they buy you ground cassava stuff that can keep without refrigeration and all sorts of stuff that you can eat and stuff and you have to ration that through the whole trimester because if you run out too early they you're in boarding school you have to wait until the next time they come see you the other thing is if you got tired of one of those foods you had to get creative to figure out how to mix one or two of them together to make something new so back then you'd get tired of just eating hot chocolate so what we would do is we would take (laughs) this is so stupid we would take paper and pour the hot chocolate and uh, the cocoa powder in there and fold it over and then we'd take an iron and iron the paper so the cocoa powder forms a really crisp thin sheet and we used to eat that as chocolate John is looking at me like I'm a crazy person. This is the extent of cooking. And what we would do is, you know those aluminum bowls? Those metal aluminum bowls? Or maybe they're stainless steel. They're stainless steel. Oh, my God. Because we weren't allowed to have stovetops or electric cookers, but we were allowed to have irons so we could iron our uniforms for boarding school. We would take the iron, place it very strategically against the wall so it stood straight, and then you would put water in those aluminum bowls or stainless steel bowls, put it on the iron, boil the water, and use that to make noodles. And then you'd put stuff like sardines in there. Look, this cooking thing, I don't think I'm good at it, but if I have two or more things in the house, I will make something. It will not be great tasting, but it will be edible, and it will go down the same road. I think, we'll eat it. I think it's really remarkable that you two can make any show about childhood trauma <laughs> indirectly. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> There's enough trauma to go around, my dear. This is content. <laughs> We're just blessed. Yeah. I blessed. you asked, you asked me to come here and talk about cooking, and now I feel like I, I need blessed. to give you a hug. <laughs> God, we made it work, yeah. but you know what? We started at the bottom. You know where we are? You're slightly above the bottom. <laughs> slightly. My my early exposure to food was much more of the William Sonoma Ina Garten variety. Uh, I never had to make. That's a luxury to I, us. I never had to make brownies mm-hmm. in a. I don't even remember what you just <laughs> said. I already blocked it out. It was too sad. Yeah, I wish I had picked up more of my mom's resourcefulness with cooking because she is very good at winging it we used to have this is another (laughs) i mean i knew this was a poor person thing you didn't have to i didn't have to have that realization uh anytime we had (laughs) leftovers that were close to going bad that hadn't been eaten yet we would freeze them and when we had enough like frozen random bits of leftovers my mom would make shit stew (laughs) so-called because it was whatever shit we had in the freezer (laughs) And shit stew was like, it was never the same thing. It was just whatever she made out of the frozen stuff we had in the freezer. So sometimes shit stew was terrible. But sometimes shit stew was pretty good. (laughs) And like, it was amazing that sometimes she made a good meal out of random frozen bits of leftovers from the freezer. And like, I sort of wish I had picked up that skill. I mean, I also kind of don't want to be in a situation where I need to use that skill, but <laughs> but my mom is very good at that. So how did you learn to cook or how does someone learn how to cook if they're, if they want to learn? Well, how did, how did I learn how to cook? I'll start there because that I, I, there's a lot of qualifications there. <laughs> how did you learn to cook? I so, like I, I mean, like I already said, it was definitely partly a you know familial activity that, that like my my father and I would do, and and my dad really he has a real passion for it. And so at first I would just sort of follow him. I I would cook with him, and and this sort of answers the second question: how how should people learn how to cook? Just pick something they they like to eat, and it doesn't matter how trivial or easy it is. You know, if someone likes pasta, and I mean really just simple pasta with red sauce go find a recipe and then just follow it eat it and see how it is it's not like you're just going to pick up a book and then a week later you're going to be good at cooking because it it takes experience so you just need to go find something you like try it and then try it again later and then pick something else you like um find a recipe for that and then just go go try it my follow-up question to that is and this is i'm not asking for a friend i'm asking for my damn self (laughs) what is (laughs) what is a practical thing to do when you do take that leap of faith, you make the deal for the first time and you hate it and you're discouraged. How do you rebound from that? <laughs> because many a meal I have tried and I have vowed on the spot never to do a second time. That's that's a really good question. I think that it's sort of like with, with most things, I think that, that you try and fail at, but it's... I would say that, okay, you make a meal, it comes out absolutely terrible, you have three bites of it, and then you throw it away and order pizza, and then, <laughs> go, to, and then go to bed feeling bad about yourself. It's, <laughs> what I would say is like, you know, the next night, don't try it again yet, just have something you know you're going to like, have something you know is going gonna, is gonna to taste good, regroup, 
And then try it the night after that. You know, give yourself a day to just kind of go back to your comfort zone, do whatever you want, and then try it again. And and I'll I'll, I'll as a caveat, hopefully you you can have a sense of you know what went wrong. And I think a lot of times you you can figure out something that didn't go well. Like I keep going back to pasta because pasta is something that a lot of people love and it's relatively easy to make. You know, if you're eating the pasta, you're like, this is mushy and it it just it's basically like just you know like it just falls apart. Okay, well, I I probably boiled it too long, so let me let me try to boil it less time. So you just pick one thing and sort of see how it works. Now, I will also say, because sometimes you'll try it, and you're like, this tastes awful. I don't know why. It, all I know is that it tastes terrible. <laughs> um, you know, it can help to, to cook for friends sometimes. And, like, if you're actually trying to, to learn how to cook... Like, yes, it can be stressful to cook for other people, but it can also be helpful sometimes if you have friends that aren't just going to, like, read you to filth for, like, making oh. them bad pasta. But <laughs> it, it can it can help to have some different perspectives because different people can kind of, you know, taste different things and they have different palates. And they might be able to give you some advice if you have friends you trust that much. I, I Maybe not everyone has friends mm. they trust like that. <laughs> <laughs> that. That makes sense. That does make sense. As a rule, when somebody says potluck, first of all, I hate potlucks. Let me just put that out there. I fucking hate them. If anybody invites me to a potluck, I will decline. I'm sorry. I don't even care. I'm not coming. But if I do show up, I'm taking my ass to the store and I'm buying something store-bought. Because the last thing that I want to do is bring something that I think is absolutely chef's kiss somebody says oh this is spicy well fuck yourself <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> but that's that's exactly what i worry about i'm like this dish won't be the same dish if i tone yeah. down the pepper just to accommodate people so i'm like store-bought everything my dear store-bought well, like i feel like this advice illuminate extends well beyond cooking which is do not live your life around what white people like <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're gonna that's gonna be the intro of this episode <laughs> that, <laughs> that is going to be the intro of this episode <laughs> listen eliminate if if there's one thing that and there are many things, but if there is one thing that American white people have ruined, it's it's food. <laughs> it's just because yeah. there there are there are so many just wonderful foods out there, and so few of them are originally American. Like so much American food, when you go to a good restaurant in the United States, nine times out of ten, it's an Italian restaurant or a French restaurant or, you know, an Ethiopian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant or something. It's not American food. And then you've got that one out of 10 where it is American food. And then half of those times it's, it's fucking burgers because that's what Americans have come up with is a ground meat sandwich <laughs> as our breakthrough culinary gift to the world. And it's not even American. So, you know, they're, they're, what, what I'm trying to say is do not get discouraged because white people don't like flavor and heat. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> it's not the case that I'm discouraged. It's the case where I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to fight. <laughs> I feel strongly about this. So, you know, the, like, 
potluck is one thing, but you know, in in the two cases where you're cooking for somebody, you've got like the potluck case where you you have brought some food and it's one item of food among many, and then there's the case where like you have people over your home and you've cooked for them. So, if like in the potluck case, if somebody at a potluck eats food and it's free, by the way, because you're at a fucking potluck, it's not like you paid for it. If you eat someone's food that they bought and then criticize it, you deserve to be thrown under a train. I mean, that is simply... (laughs) But in the other case, though, where you invite people over your home and you've cooked dinner and that's the only thing to eat. Like, I feel like at the same time, like, it might be rude to criticize it, but making spicy food... Definitely is the kind of thing where you should warn your guests like, hey, by the way, I'm cooking dinner, but also do you like spicy food? And if someone doesn't, then yeah, you're kind of in a a tricky spot because if that's if like the only stuff you know how to cook is spicy and you're having people over as guests and they don't like spicy food at that point, it's tricky to be like, well, here's some spicy food. (laughs) Enjoy it. This is the other thing I will say, though. Um, This is this doesn't have much to do with cooking. But I'm of the mindset of if I'm inviting people to, I don't know, a get together or party, it is my job as the host to make sure that everybody at least has something to eat. Yeah. And I don't think it's the job of anybody else who's in attendance to bring something in terms of a potluck for other people. I'm like, no, this, you, I'm, you're my guest. You shouldn't yeah. have to feed the other people. And to that end, I usually what I do is I'll get a little bit of everything. So if there's somebody who's vegetarian who doesn't eat meat or, or somebody who doesn't eat spicy food, or I make sure I get, or if, the best thing I can do is some desserts because I feel like a lot of people can do dessert. But then again, there are people who are lactose intolerant who can't do some dessert. And then if that's the case, I just bring you lactase pills. Like, my dear, if you can't eat anything here, here are some fucking lactase pills. You're going to eat this dessert. You're going to eat it. But yeah, no, I, I feel like, yeah. Or if worst case scenario is, thank God I live in this city, DoorDash is on my phone. You tell me right. what you can eat, and then I order it for you, and then it arrives. Because, yeah, I don't think it's fair for me to ask you to come over to my place for a good time, and then you're out here starving. Right. Yeah. So what's one of your biggest cooking fails? If you need some time to think, I don't. So I do. I need a, yeah. <laughs> because I can tell you about macarons. Fucking macarons. I oh got cute one time and tried to make macarons, which the distinction, like macaroons are the coconut cookie. It's like mostly coconut with some chocolate macarons or the fancy dainty little French sandwich cookie things. Yeah, I got cute thinking I could make those. No, 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 no. I found this recipe that promised. (laughs) I know they sound complicated. Everyone on the internet makes them sound so complicated. They're not. Just follow this recipe. And the recipe was very detailed, which faked me into thinking that it would be fine. It was not fine. So many things went wrong. The whole way along, I just kept trucking. It was like you like beat eggs and it was like stiff, but not stiff. Perky, but not... I don't know. Every step of the way, I think I messed something up. You were supposed to, like, let them settle. They were supposed to form a nice skin. It didn't. I just kept trucking. I got to the end. And some of it was not even the recipe's fault. Some of it was just me fucking things up. Like, I put them on, uh, I baked them on wax paper instead of parchment paper. Oh. Those are different. Uh, wax paper (laughs) is wax. And it will stick (laughs) to your cookies. (laughs) And you will have to take a knife and shave the little bits of wax off the cookie. 
that's not the recipe's fault. That's just my fault. So I end up with these like, you know, macarons in a shop are these perfectly little round things with the cute little frosting in the middle. I end up with these like lumpy green hideous cookies that are burnt and shaved off on the bottom from the wax and like terrible frosting that I didn't have a frosting bag for so there's too much of it and I put them on Instagram and my friends are like trying to help they're like oh well next time you make them yeah right next time you make them here's some this here's some resources (laughs) and one of my friends god bless her is trying to help but she was like you should market them on Etsy as like natural vagina cookies, like like women's ah. empowerment, like lumpy <laughs> vagina cookies. <laughs> it's like <laughs> not lumpy vagina cookies. Oh my god! Don't believe anyone who tells you macarons are simple. They are not. They're awful. They can go wrong in so many ways, and I found most of them. I specifically haven't done this, but I have seen some people do these cooking fails. In Nigerian cooking, there is something called bleaching palm oil. It's basically, you heat the palm oil really hot, and then it goes from being red to clear. Some people do this. There's two ways you can do it. You can either leave the lid on, or you can leave the lid off. When you leave the lid off, you risk the oil splattering and getting in under the around the pot to the fire. And as you know, oil catches fire. <laughs> Many a grease fire has happened in Nigerian homes because of this. Because of this. Option number two, you keep the lid on. But you know what happens when you keep the lid on? All the moisture that happens condenses on the lid, drips back into the pan, touches the oil, and an explosion happens. When that explosion happens, the lid can pop off. And then the oil follows soup, hits the fire, and you have a grease fire. PSA for the listeners of the Big Empty Purse podcast. If you ever experience a grease fire in your kitchen, put a pot lid over it. Do not attempt to pour water on it because then your house will burn down. (laughs) The more you know. Louder for the people in the back. (laughs) People do not know that. Like, So my uh, biggest cooking failure, a couple came to mind, but, but... but one I'm going to tell because I think this may be of use to a, a listener or two that lives in the U.S. So I was making, I believe it was for Christie's birthday, a, um, a recipe actually out of that Dishoom cookbook. And it was um, a, a prawn moale curry, which was this uh, coconut-based curry. Uh, it was very tasty, ultimately. Um, but what happened was, as with most Indian, Southeast Asian dishes, uh, there was a coconut-based ingredient in it. And um, in that part of the world, they use coconuts for just so very many things. And there are things they do with coconuts that I do not understand, nor do I have access to usually in terms of <laughs> ingredients. So... I'm familiar with the usual, you know, just like dried coconut I've seen. I know what a coconut looks like. I've seen coconut milk, etc. But this particular recipe called for a coconut cream. And as it turns out, it's not a, a horribly uh, hard to get ingredient. Most grocery stores have it. But um, we went shopping and we bought what it said on the can was was cream of coconut. 
and it was um, sold by this company, Lopez. And I see Illuminati's face. I think he knows where the story is going. But as it turns out, in the United States, uh, Coco Lopez, which says on the can, cream of coconut. It does not say anywhere on the can that it is anything other than cream of coconut. Uh, is a super, super, super sweetened, like, syrup concoction that's basically only used for pina coladas. Like, that is its sole (laughs) purpose in this universe, is to be used in pina colada mix. And, but I did not know, I had never cooked with cream of coconut before, and went to the grocery store and bought this can that said cream of coconut. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I put it in this dish and I taste it. And it's a whole can. Like it, it's that is the base for this this curry. And it was just ruined. Instantly ruined. I mean, I tasted it and it tasted like dessert. It was so <laughs> ridiculously sweet. It was inedible and like part of my brain was like, "No, it's just a sweet curry it's fine and christy was being very generous and tasted it and was like no it's it's good and it it wasn't so (laughs) it just wasn't and i just and this was her birthday dinner like this was what we were gonna have for her birthday celebration and it was the only can of it i had and this was not the first step by the way this was an hour into making this curry because you you, you yep. prep all the vegetables, you prep all the ingredients, and then you have, you know, you saute them, you season them. There's a couple other, um, there was a stock in there or something like that first. And then you put the cream of coconut in sort of last. And it was only at the very end when I tasted it and it was like, this is absolutely ruined. So we had to go out and then, and so I started doing some research and then only after... Some substantial digging, by the way. It, it wasn't like, you know, you Google Coco Lopez and the first thing is like, you know, in red letters, do not use this in place of cream of coconut. Um, so I eventually found out, and this is, you know, another PSA for any listeners. If you need to use cream of coconut, you need to go buy unsweetened cream of coconut. Um, and it'll usually be in the Thai food section. And it was just so telling about Americans and American food that this horrible corn syrup nightmare is just called co- cream of coconut and the real cream of coconut was called unsweetened cream of coconut as if this is some like weirdo spin-off of cream of coconut and uh so i had to remake the whole thing and it it ultimately came out very tasty yeah. and i luckily didn't hadn't put the 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 prawns in yet because that would have been much sadder okay. if I had to throw out like you know two pounds of, of <laughs> sweet product. <of> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was that was. I, I'm not gonna say like my biggest screw up ever, but but at least the most recent one that comes to mind, and uh, an important lesson because I learned that Americans are not to be trusted with foreign ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Oh, see, when you said my birthday, I thought you were the going cake. in the direction of red velvet cake. The cake. that It's funny you say that, Christy, because that was the other story I was debating telling. <laughs> and I guess I could tell it very quickly. So I decided to make Christy a cake for her birthday. And I, I was home. You were at work. I was home. I don't remember why. This was a couple of years ago. And I figured, well, it's her birthday. And while I'm home, 
I'll make her a cake as, as a surprise for when she gets home. And, and uh, I mistakenly, I didn't even get the, the kind of cake right. I fucked that up too. Because in my head, I thought that red velvet cake was her favorite kind of cake. And it turns out it's not. Um, but anyway, I was like, all right, red velvet cake. I'm going to make that. And a, a red velvet cake is a type of cake called a chiffon cake. And it, um, it has a high oil content in the batter. And it is one thing that actually to this day, I have never successfully made it. I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. I've tried a few times. <laughs> I don't know. It just, I always fuck it up. So I, I just don't try anymore. Um, I pay people to do it for me. That's what I do now. Um, but yeah, I tried to do it and I spent a long time because I'm not a good baker. And so I spent like a good portion of my day doing this and I cooked it and I put far too much oil in the batter. And what happened was when I baked it, it didn't bake, it fried in the oven because the, the oil kind of, yeah, it seeped out from the batter and, and the edges were crispy, like really crispy, like, like really crispy. <laughs> and, and like, I kind of knew this, but what happened was it, 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 it the, the error compounded itself because I took it out of the oven and it was like, Ooh, this is a crispy cake and cake is not supposed to be crispy, but it wasn't, it wasn't that bad right out of the oven. So I kind of put it together and I frosted it. But then what happened obviously is that it cooled and I didn't think about this, but like everything, when it cools out of the oven, it gets even crispier. So what was like a mildly crispy like edge on the cake by the time I had like frosted Rock it and hype. cut it, it just, it was like a cracker. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> it was browned too, by the way. Like it wasn't even just crispy and also no. red. Like the edge was, was browned. <laughs> and Christy very dutifully had like a quarter of a slice and said that it wasn't horrible and she lied and it was very nice of her, but... <laughs> It was terrible. It was really terrible. <laughs> Let's take a minute to educate the children. So what are some common mistakes that people make when cooking that are easy to fix? Salt. This one's this one's out to all the white people out there. Put yeah. salt in your fucking food. I don't know how to put that any, any nicer to you, but put some fucking salt in your food. There's no salt in your food, Linda. Um, so... <laughs> Linda. Just, Linda. I feel like she can benefit from this. No, but uh, really though, I, I feel like salt, so so much food has has really great flavor inherent in the ingredients. Um, I mean, French food is a, actually a really great example. Um, this might be anecdotal, but I don't care because it's a, it's a fun story anyway. But the, the story <laughs> I've heard is that culturally, um, in, in French cooking, they use fresh herbs obviously but in terms of like spices they use salt and black pepper and that's it they don't use anything else and the the story i've heard is that um i think it was louis the the 14th uh famously just had a really sensitive palate he didn't like uh heavily seasoned food and so at the time whatever the royalty ate uh it became fashionable to eat that and he would only eat salt and black pepper and so um it became fashionable in France to only season food with salt and black pepper. So I don't know if that's true. It's kind of a fun anecdote, but it is true that, that in French cooking, salt and black pepper is basically what you use other than the fresh herbs. Um, but all that is to say French food is, is magnificent. It, it can be exceptionally flavorful, really delightful. And the thing about French food is that you're accentuating the ingredients that you put in the food, the meat, the vegetables, um, they're all very, they're fresh and, and, and delicious. And all it takes is a little bit of salt. 
and you can really bring that out. So I think that's one big mistake is that when people say like, oh, my food doesn't taste good or doesn't taste like much, put another little pinch of salt in and see if that improved anything. Because honestly, a lot of times it does. Um, it, it can really be that simple. Um, another one that comes to mind is I feel like a lot of people, especially who are just learning how to cook, are afraid of using uh, really high heat on the stove. When you're cooking meat especially, this goes for other things as well, but people who are just getting started, they're, I think, afraid of a really, really hot pan. And that's understandable because I think they think, oh, if it's too hot, it's going to cook too fast. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to burn it. And, okay, yes, that is a risk. But at the same time, if you have a really uh, lukewarm pan, your meat is going to come out sad and gray and <laughs> tough and steamed. Because what's going to happen is the water on the surface of the meat is going to evaporate and you're going to steam the meat and it's just going to come out sad and gray. What you really want is as much heat as you feel comfortable with and then some. And when you put meat in a pan, it should hiss. It should give you a really nice, loud, high-pitched hissing noise. And that's the sound of the water evaporating off very, very quickly. And it's not just going to pool in the pan and boil. Um, the water's going to get out of the way, and then you're going to get that nice, brown, tasty crust on the meat. Um, and that's another mistake I see a lot, is just being afraid of heat, which you shouldn't be. It's your friend. Um, <laughs> So those are two. Oh, uh, burning your garlic. A lot of recipes are wrong. And this goes back to bad <laughs> recipes. Um, I, have, I cannot tell you how many recipes I have seen that'll be like, mince the garlic, saute it in oil. And, and it'll say like, saute the garlic until tender, eight minutes, which are, which are lies. It has never in the history of food taken eight minutes to saute garlic. Eight minutes? It's, it's charcoal by that point. You should, you should saute your garlic right at the end, right before you put other stuff in there so that it doesn't burn. Um, and it takes like two minutes because garlic burns really easily. So don't burn your garlic. The reason why I made that face yeah. is because the first two you said are exactly the opposite of what I was instantly going to say. Mm. Because the two things is when you said put more salt... In my culture, we cook with a lot of bouillon. Mm. And the bouillon is already slightly salted. Yeah. And what Nigerians do instinctively is reach for the salt. <laughs> so what ends up happening is they usually oversalt the food. Now, I'm very guilty of this, too. I've done this several times because that secret you just spilled to some people, I've known growing up. <laughs> salt does enhance the taste of everything. Mm -hmm. But... What I've started doing now is if I'm cooking a pot of something, I section off a little bit. I salt it first because I'm very heavy handed with the salt. And then mm. if I've over salted, I can correct with the amount that I yeah. took out and put it back in. So that'll like pretty much mm. balance it out. The second thing is exactly the opposite also of what I was going to say. Mistake number one growing up is people will put something on the stove, walk away on high heat. High. <laughs> And what ends up happening is the thing doesn't cook through. The bottom just burns. Yeah. Rice is a very big copper for this. You want rice to steam when you cook it. You don't want it to... People will burn the bottom of the pot, the first half inch, 
ashes, my dear. The top of the rice, <laughs> rock solid, hasn't even cooked. And you're like, why? What was the reason? What was the reason? <laughs> this is, uh, but yeah, that, those are the first two things. And the, the other thing that I, I've seen too is um, they will cook chicken for more than 20 minutes. Now, if you know anything about chicken, that shit gets rubbery after minute number 15. I have had somebody's chicken. I, I took a video of this and I was going to post it to Instagram and I thought maybe, maybe not. That chicken was overboiled. I literally, I have tiles in the basement. <laughs> I grabbed that chicken. I threw it at the floor. That shit bounced three times. Ugh. Three. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Chicken's mm-hmm. very interesting to me because I feel like it's what so many people go to as like a I'm not a very good cook. I'm going to cook something. I'll make chicken. But the thing about poultry is that it's actually very tricky. Difficult. It's very mm-hmm. tricky because it's it has no fat in the meat at all. There's no fat in the actual meat. So it gets very dry, number one, if you don't do it right. Um, it gets rubbery if you overcook it. <laughs> and then there's no such thing as a raw piece of chicken or, or as a rare chicken. It's raw. You cannot do chicken tartare. You, you White people, do you're this very... You cannot do that. But yeah, so we've touched on this in a couple ways already, but how do different countries and culture differ in their approach to cooking? Nigerians are, my dear, if you're a Nigerian and you listen to this podcast, you listen to me, you raggedy bitch. If you are going to make an online recipe on YouTube, we need you to explain Nigerian recipes, what they'll tell you, bouillon to taste, salt to taste, chili pepper to taste, everything to taste. What the fuck? What good is this recipe? I know I need some bouillon. How much of it, my dear? How much? You tell me how much. They will tell you everything to taste, and the recipes are never useful. And I think this is a function of the fact that Nigerians cook intuitively. And I don't know how. Like, they are just good cooks. They just know. But for you to pass this knowledge to someone who is not in the culture, even if you're in the culture, mama, me, I'm out here like, I don't even know. The jollof rice, you have no idea how many years it took me to learn a passable jollof rice. It's... <laughs> And what they don't tell you is exactly how much of anything to add. Or they'll tell you uh, jollof rice, they'll tell you something vague like um, make tomato and uh, pepper paste. They don't tell you it's supposed to have onions. It needs to have onions. They don't tell you if you're going to use red or white onions. I've made the mistake of using the wrong onion before. It doesn't really hurt it, but the flavor is distinctively different. There are a lot of things that they just leave out so in my culture cooking is like by intuition they just know they'll say oh um they'll say something like when the rice is soft enough put it in x (laughs) mama what is soft enough or they'll tell you use rice use (laughs) rice do you want long grain rice do you mean jasmine (laughs) like there's so many types of rice or they'll tell you use rice or they won't tell you you need to wash off the starch from the rice before you cook and then you cook it and then you have the starchy rice so oh, yeah. yeah nigerian cooking is very much they leave out a lot of information and everything is supposed to be by intuition and that shit does not fly <laughs> we need to do better about our ingredients and explaining exactly what we're doing but anyway that's how nigerian cooking is the thing is i i i'm not going to pretend to be an expert on any sort of like you know 
cooking from different cultures. But when you look at the history of so many of these foods, they all come from this sort of poor peasants in some countries, if, if you know, parts of Europe where the history goes back that far and, and just food where it was made by people who were workers and laborers and, you know, people who were throwing together what food they had. And, and that's what sort of trickled up to be the, the really phenomenal cuisine from those countries. And, and, you know, some examples that come to mind are, um, when you look at French cooking, like there are these uh, French dishes that I absolutely love to make. There's a beef bourguignon and um, coco vin, which are they're, they're similar dishes, but one's made with with uh, chicken nowadays, and and um, the other with beef. It, it came from French farmers in the, in the countryside who, you know, they grew vegetables, they raised chickens, they they you know they were dairy farmers, and they did that for a living. They did that to go sell it. They they didn't they didn't do it to make you know, high cuisine, um, but they'd have to eat. And so they would take their old, tough roosters and, and they would have to eat them because that's the meat they had. And so what they would do is they would cook it and they would let it simmer in red wine for hours. And the red wine, the, the alcohol in the red wine would break down the, um, the, the muscle tissue and it would make it really tender and it would make it, you know, not just edible, but very tasty. And, that was the kind of thing that, that, you know, as a poor farmer in France, you would make for your family and you could make enormous quantities of it. Um, and nowadays, you know, uh, uh, you go to a nice French restaurant and that's the sort of food you have. And, and I know a lot of it goes for um, Indian food as well. Um, there's a dish called uh, biryani that it, it's, it's very, you know, it's a rice based dish with a lot of seasonings. And apparently the, the story, it's kind of similar that it was a, a dish that was eaten by a lot of the, the, the peasantry in India. And um, there was a, uh, you know, somebody in the the, up, the the higher classes who tasted and thought it was wonderful and it was prepared for them then for, you know, some sort of high class dinner. And then it became a really high end uh, Indian dish that you'll have now at Indian restaurants and things like that. So I, I think it's really fascinating that no matter where you are in the world, I think that food really comes from this place of you know, it's people who just needed to feed themselves. And it's funny how those those foods that are made out of necessity historically can turn into such amazing, um, you know, ubiquitous dishes. We've already tried to figure that out, but John, Illumide, why won't white people season their food? Ooh. <laughs> God. This is a loaded question. <laughs> oh, shit. So I know, all right, I have a couple interesting facts and, well, all right, one of them is just totally anecdotal again, and it's probably made up. A lot of what I know about food is probably wrong, but it sounds good. But the other thing I actually know is interesting. So number one, I've, I've heard this, and I don't know if it's true or not. It's probably just a convenient excuse for white people that don't know how to taste things, but I, I have heard that... Um, if you look at, you know, where, where seasonings historically are used, it's in the more, um, equatorial countries. It's, it's places that are typically hotter, that are more tropical. Um, if you just look at the trends, you know, like Northern Europe is typically where you have the stereotypical foods that are bland and, you know, uh, Russian food, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas, you know, Indian food, African cuisine, Chinese food, like all this stuff is very well seasoned. So 
the sort of explanation I've heard culturally is that um, it was easier to store meat in the north because it was colder and so meat would not go bad and you would have fresh meat more readily available which did not require seasoning because it's it's fresh it hasn't gone bad it's not gonna you know um gonna go bad as quickly and then where it's warmer it requires a little more seasoning to make it edible and so those countries just culturally had some more reason to develop those um you know really complex seasonings i don't know if that's true even slightly that's what i've heard (laughs) and it may just be a convenient excuse for people um that don't know how to do it the other story I'd, i'd heard and this was sort of interesting was that um in the 80s when um, when AIDS was first being understood, there was this pseudoscientific uh, movement to help AIDS patients with natural eating and and sort of eating um, healthier foods and and you know trying to do it nutritionally. And the result of a lot of that was was foods that were just not as interesting. They were you know raw foods. They were you know just sort of their attempt at eating healthy and it was stuff that maybe wasn't seasoned it wasn't you know any of that so interestingly apparently because there was such an overlap between uh the 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 gay community and aids patients and even back in the 80s uh what the gay community was doing was influential enough to be trendy so apparently when a lot of aids patients started eating quote-unquote natural healthy foods uh, a lot of those people were gay and a lot of so then therefore overnight a lot of gay people were eating natural healthy foods which kind of tended to be bland and then it became trendy to eat natural healthy foods which kind of ended up being bland so that one i actually know is true and um i don't know how much of that we're still seeing today but um i do know that's why there was such a like you know a health food craze in the in the 90s and early 2000s was actually just left over from from that um that all being said I have no excuse for white people and not being able to, to season their food. I mean, those are those are both sort of anecdotal things. At the end of the day, I think so many good foods are based in, you know, foreign cultures that I think maybe a lot of white Americans have, have lost touch with a little bit. You know, like, like you know, Limita, you said you cook a lot of Nigerian food because that's obviously where you're from, where your family's from, and, and a place where they use a lot of that. Whereas, you know, someone that's fourth generation in the U.S. who... Uh, you know, whose family emigrated from the UK um, is not going to have a lot of history. Now, that being yes. said, I could do an entire episode on why British food is evil and horrible <laughs> and terrible. Evil. But I'm not going to. British food? British. British food. British food. British, British, British food. It's, oh, fuck them. It's seriously just, evil. it's an insult to food and all things food adjacent. All right, well. John, I know you gotta go, but we're uh, we're wrapping up yeah. all of our guest episodes with one question to our guests, which is, what are your favorite and least favorite things about being an adult? Oh God. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> well, I think the the my favorite thing about being an adult is I can sort of just live my life the way I'd like to, which which is which is nice if if you know to sort of have the freedom to within your means do what makes you happy and go for it my least favorite thing about being an adult i mean it's just been true for so many years there's never a single moment 
when I don't have something that like I need to do. Like there's never a truly relaxing moment. All there are are moments where I'm putting off something that needs to happen. Like literally, there there hasn't responsibilities. It, it's there's probably it's probably been a decade yeah. since I've actually had a moment where I'm like, great, I have nothing that needs to be done, so I can relax. It's always like, all right, fuck that shit. I'm gonna relax instead of doing those important things. <laughs> Um, right now at this very moment, I need to call and make reservations at a hotel for a friend's wedding. I haven't done it and that needs to be done. And so every moment where I'm not doing that, I should be doing thinking about it. Um, (laughs) yeah. And it's just constant and that won't stop until I'm dead. And that's, that's fine. You know, that's, that's, that's how it is. But <laughs> oh, no. The responsibilities of adulthood. So sorry. And even then, I'm just passing it on to the people that, you know, have to take care of me when I die. Like, it's not that those things don't have to get done. It's just that, like, it's somebody else's problem now. <laughs> on that note... <laughs> I was glad to have given you a, a stinger for your open, your cold open early Thank on. you. <laughs> I recognized it when I heard it. I was like, this is the one. This is it. This is it. <laughs> so that concludes our episode on cooking. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. We had an absolute blast. It was really nice to have you again. This was fun. Yeah. This was really fun. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah. It won't be the last time. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode. You can find us, as always, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, at Big Empty Purse. Tweet us. Message us. Send us pictures of your cooking fails. We know you've got them. (laughs) And let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about in the future. On next week's episode, we'll be talking about... It's actually to be determined. You should show up next week. We'll be here, and we'll definitely let you know then. Until next time, peace.